If you're a guest with us, my name is Rob. I'm one of the ministers here at New Hope and glad to be here uh, getting to teach um, uh, God's Word to you this morning as we continue in a series. We're going to start today. I wish we didn't have to start this way, uh, to be honest with you. Uh, but to remain silent, I'm learning, um, is no longer an option. You can't just be quiet about certain things. And so we need to address certain things. Beginning last weekend with the white supremacy marches in Charlottesville, Virginia, and this past week being full of discussions about racism and racial relations and tension in our country, um, it's become heartbreaking. Uh, what Confederate symbols mean, the right way to move forward, all kinds of different things. And I'll tell you, our response as the body of Christ must begin with an abundantly clear condemnation of the evil that is racism. It must be saturated with love and with prayer. And it's got to remain hopeful, even in the darkest of days, which we're in. See, our gospel identity, what unites us in Christ, uh, brings us together and sends us out to live intentionally. And so when we come together, we must uh, address things that are not always easy to address. So I want to make it very clear. There is no room in this church or in any other church that has Jesus Christ as its king or racism or white supremacy. Racism, all three services. It's incompatible with the gospel. It cannot, cannot coincide with the truth of the gospel. It is disgusting and it's deplorable. And for you to think any other way is hateful and wrong. And I just, I really hope that my kids get to the point where they experience so rich a diversity that it doesn't even need to be talked about. I really wish. But that's not where we're at today. And so to move forward, we need to begin, to begin with the Bible's call to pray. You see, we're called to be a praying people who lean heavily into the power of prayer and believe that our prayers bring about things that our, our prayers actually bring about God's blessings. And so we need to begin with prayer. And so this morning, I want to do something. I'm going to ask everybody to stand up. I'd like you to unite hands across the aisles, the rows. I want you to have somebody on your right and left move around. Whatever we got to do, everybody unite hands. I want to point out a couple of things. The person to your right and to your left is different from you. They're completely different from you. They're not the same. There's no two people that are the same. Everybody. But it is the beauty of that difference that creates in us what God would desire from us, and that's unity. When we can see from the proper perspective that God made everybody different. I mean, look at how beautiful this room is right now, uniting hands. And so what we begin today by praying together, genuinely, like we come to church, it's like a stage in a room, it's just, we're just a group of friends together. And what we begin today in praying, my, my pleading with you would be that we would continue to do every day after this. That being quiet is no longer an option. We must stand up and speak out against evil in this world. And it starts with us coming together before our Heavenly Father in prayer. Let's pray. Father, thank you for being so good because we're such a broken people. We're broken. I, my, 
this, this country, this world, it's breaking my heart what's going on, and yet it doesn't surprise me. We need Jesus. We need grace. And so, Father, we come together, united, holding hands, coming together before you, pleading with you. So many of the prayers in the Bible are laments, and they're, they're pleadings, and they're, they're begging you. And so right now, Father, we come before you, united, begging you to move powerfully. Father, that the church would stand firm on the truth, speak out against evil, but do so in love. So, Father, my prayer is that all people that look different than us would know that we love them and care for them. For all people that we get to interact with on a daily basis at work and at home and neighborhood, wherever we're at, Father, that we would be people that would pursue peacemaking, that we would be characterized as people of unity, that we would love and care for everyone that you put in our path, and we would represent Jesus well. Father, I thank you for an opportunity like this, but God, I'm begging you, don't let it end here. Let this be just the beginning of a group of people pursuing peace. I pray for this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. You can have a seat. Thank you. Hey, if you have your Bible, you can open it up to 1 Timothy. We're continuing a series um, where in God's providence, the way that he moves... Uh, how appropriate a sermon series like this. We're going to be spending the next few months walking through First and Second Timothy. And with everything that's going on in our world, this is Paul's instruction to Timothy for how the church should look. Like, like Timothy, this is how a church should look. This is how Christians should behave. And, and we're going to be studying that over the next few months. And we started this series um, last week. And so you're not too far behind. And we started to explore Paul's intent. And so if you turn over to First Timothy chapter 3, and verses 14 and 15, he kind of gives the heart for the letter that he's writing to his young protege, Timothy. And he says this, I hope to come to you soon, Timothy. But I'm writing these things to you so that if I do delay, if for some reason I can't make it to you, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar of truth. And so this is the truth, and this is what it looks like to be a part of a church and to live in the church. And so he lays out all these instructions for Timothy, and we're going to spend a few months just kind of walking through them. Last week, the first truth we came to is the very beginning. The life in the church begins with the foundation of guarding truth, not shying away from it. And so we learned you can't guard a truth that you don't know. You can't. You have to spend time in the Word of God. You have to devour the Word of God. You can't assume knowledge in the Word of God. And some of us, we're all at different levels, but we all need to take another step forward in our understanding of a truth that we're called to guard. In fact, both Peter and Paul give us clear instructions to be capable of defending the hope that we claim to profess. So we have to be able to articulate, why is it that I believe this stuff? Why is this stuff even a part of my life? And so we started with the truth, because the church is founded upon the truth, and we stand firm on his truth. And we do so with love. Today, Paul begins to shift us into a, a, a direction based on truth. So, hey, if that is true in your life, if you're guarding the truth, here's the perspective you should have about your own life. And so Paul's going to give us some of that. As I was thinking through that this week, what it looks like to have a proper perspective, I was, uh, I was remembering part of my story. Some of you know this, but um, I was adopted at a young age. My dad w- was killed and my mom was out of the picture, and so we were adopted by my mom's brother, and he was young when he took us in. He's a single guy, and he takes us in, and he would tell you this, so he would say, I had no idea what I was doing. I got these two kids, these two brothers, and I'm supposed to raise them, and so he did what anybody who didn't know what they were doing would do, and he signed us up for karate classes. (laughs) (laughs) 
And so me and my brother, we get signed up for these karate classes. And he's like, well, I got to teach you how to be tough. So, and, and then looking back, I'm like, I don't know if this was the wisest choice because uh, he would leave us at the apartment all day during the summer and go to work. And so we're like training karate and then we're alone in an apartment all day. And I've got some scars on my body that would tell you that was not the wisest choice for him to leave us alone. But in the karate and doing all that stuff, one of the things that we really um, took a liking to was a series of movies that if you're 20 or younger, you might not know, but you should, and shame on you if you don't, The Karate Kid. Okay, first two, great. After that, leave it alone. Okay, <laughs> the first one is the best one. And the premise of the movie, The Karate Kid, is great. You have this very frail young kid, Daniel LaRusso, right? Or more affectionately, he was called what? Daniel son. Thank you. We have one loyal movie watcher. Thank you. So Daniel son, right? And Mr. Miyagi, this, this Chinese man, is the facility manager at the apartment complex where Daniel and his mom moved to. And, and Daniel's getting picked on in school. He's getting bullied. And so he comes to Mr. Miyagi and he's like, hey, I need you to teach me karate because he, he figures out he knows karate. He's like, all right, I'll teach you karate. C come over to my house. And so he comes over to his house and he uh, puts him to work. He's like, all right, you got to do all the chores, and then I'll teach you karate. He's like, what? I said, yeah, you got, I have a giant privacy fence. Well, our biggest privacy fence in the history of fences. And he's like, you got to paint the whole fence. And so he starts painting the fence. And he's getting frustrated because he's not learning. He's like, oh, okay, you want to learn more? Come with me. And he brings him to look at a bunch of the cars that he owns. And he says, you got to clean the cars. And what does he teach him? He teaches him what? What? Wax on, wax off. Oh, yeah, wax on, wax off. See, now more of you coming out. You were, like, scared to say you watched it first. Now you're, Yeah. So Mr. Miyagi teaches him wax on, wax off. Well, then Daniel gets frustrated because he's still getting bullied. He's going to school. He's getting bullied. He's like, ah. And so he comes to him. He's like, I'm, you're not teaching me karate. He's like, I'm teaching you karate. No, you're not. I wish, like, he's like, you're not seeing things the right way, but I'm teaching you. you. You don't have the right perspective here, but you've been learning karate. He's like, no, I haven't. He's like, I'm, I'm going to punch you. You need to paint the fence. He's like, no, I don't want to paint the fence. I want to learn karate. I'm going to punch you. I don't, and then he swings at him and he blocks it, right? How does he block it? He blocks it by painting the fence. And he's like, wait a second. I know karate, <laughs> like changes everything for him. It's like a game changer. When he realizes he'd just been seeing it the wrong way. And I'm thinking that's a beautiful picture for what Paul does here in this next part of chapter one. He says, hey, we've all gone through certain things in our lives. We've all experienced different things. But for many of us, we see it from the wrong perspective. And an encounter with grace and with Jesus changes the perspective for how you should see everything that you experience. It should be a completely new experience in your life. And so Paul starts in after talking about the truth in 1 Timothy chapter 1. Uh, side note, this is totally weird, but uh, you get what you pay for. So um, my father-in-law yesterday, he's been preaching like a long time. I'm not doing that. But he's been preaching for a really long time. I've been preaching for like 10 years-ish and really more heavily in the last like four to five years, which means this. The whole time I've been preaching, it's been screens. So like phones. And, and so last week when I had the Bible and we were jumping back, which we're going to do again today, uh, he came to me afterwards. He's like, I heard pages moving. And I was like, yeah, I did too. It was really weird. What did that mean? No, I didn't ask him that. But typically, so it's really neat. If you don't have a Bible, if you want to use your, the screen, use it. Some of you are like putting your phone away. Ugh. Don't. You can keep your screens out. And we're going to put the passages on the screen. But if you'd like a Bible, there's one in the seat in front of you. That's yours. Keep it. Take it with you. Write in it today. Take some notes. It's really neat when you hear the pages moving. So he continues in chapter 1, verse 12. And here's what he says. He shifts his focus and he says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. And so Paul starts out, he says, Timothy, now based on all that truth, here's the thing, I thank God 
because he's the one that's given me strength. And he actually, through his mercy, appointed me to his service. Here's the thing. When he says appointed me to his service, in the original language, the Bible, your New Testament is written in Greek. That same Greek term that he uses for appointing me to his service is the same one he uses in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, where he says, he reconciled me and entrusted to me the message of reconciliation. And so what he's saying is this. When you become a Christian, he's reminding Timothy, when you become a Christian, God not only saves you, he simultaneously sends you. So you're saved and you're sent. He not only entrusts, he only reconciles you, but he simultaneously entrusts you with the message of reconciliation. And so he says, God in his mercy reconciled me, but he also entrusted me with the message of reconciliation. And he says, this is what's crazy about that, Timothy, because at one point in my life, I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and I was an opponent to this. And yet somehow, God still looked at that dark, horrible past and said, I can still use that. I can still use you, even though your, your past is really horrible. You might be thinking, well, how horrible could Paul's past be, right? We read Paul, we think he's got an S on his chest, a cape in the wind, he's super Christian. And, and so if you have your Bible, many of us, we know some of this, but you can always learn something new. So don't go checking out if you have grown up in church. But if you haven't grown up in church, uh, this is a little bit of Paul's story. Acts chapter 7, if you flip over. And right, what, what's taking place in Acts 7 is the church is blowing up. It's growing so much. Like all these people are coming to be, become Christians, and it's going really, really well. And this young man, Stephen, stands up, and he begins to preach the gospel. And the crowd treated him a whole lot different than you're treating me. So thank you very much. And we're going to read a little bit about what takes place after he proclaims the truth. Chapter 7, verse 58 of the book of Acts. And he says this. Then they, that crowd that was listening to him, cast him out of the city, and they stoned him. So they murdered him, which thank you, by the way, again. They grabbed him, and they pulled him out of the city, and they threw rocks and stones at him until he died. So he's dead. And then after this, the witnesses of this, those who were approving of this, they laid their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And we come to find out Saul is Paul, okay? So they come, and their approval of this is laid at his feet. So now you have Paul thinking back to this. I want you to think, this is a vivid memory of his. Now, I don't know what your past is like. I don't know what you've walked through or been through, the experiences that you've had in your life. I don't know the difficulties you've walked through, the mistakes that you made, but I do know this. Your past doesn't just disappear, does it? And so what we're about to learn about Paul's past is something that would continually come up over and over and over again in his life. It's something that would, it's not like he could just ignore it or block it out. The only way for his past to have a profoundly good impact on his future is for him to have a different perspective. And so here's more to his past. As if witnessing this and approving of it wasn't enough, jump down to chapter 8, flip over to chapter 8. And Saul approved of his execution. So he was approving of Stephen dying. And there rose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And the church was scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, which was fulfilling of what Jesus said would happen, except for the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen, and they made a great lamentation over him. So they were mourning the loss of Stephen. But not Saul. He wasn't mourning anything. He was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. So you have Saul now. Not only did he witness the persecution and the killing of Stephen, the first Christian martyr, who ironically enough, Paul is there when the first one is martyred, martyred only to later on become one himself. But in this moment, he's watching Stephen die. And he's approving of it. And his very approval of it. Now, what, why does it matter that he was approving of it? Because in that day, a young Jewish boy would have 
they would have studied under a rabbi. And rabbis around the age of 13 in our culture, a young Jewish boy at the age of 13, they experience what? A what? Bar mitzvah. It's this turning point in their life. And for a young Jewish boy in that day, they would, their rabbi would come to them around the age of 13 and they would say something like this, hey, come and follow me and learn my ways. Or if the student wasn't promising, they would look at him and they would say, hey, it's time for you to go pick up the family business, which is very telling when Jesus meets the apostles. They'd already experienced rejection, but not Paul. See, Saul, was, Saul Paul, he was, he was a young, like, very impressive student. And he studied under the top rabbi, a rabbi named Gamaliel. Okay, all this is in your Bible. And Gamaliel took an interest in him and brought him under his wing, and he began to disciple him and teach him. And, and Paul would later tell us in the book of Philippians that he rose to the top of all of his contemporaries. He was the top student among all students. He identifies himself as a Pharisee among Pharisees, which means he not only became the smartest and most intelligent when it came to the law, but influential. His influence rose. And so now, for him, a Pharisee of Pharisees to be standing there approving of this young man dying, that carried a lot of influence. Not only that, it sparked one of the great persecutions in the church. And it wasn't enough for him to know that that persecution had started. He wanted to feed that appetite for more, and he began to jump in and participate, pulling people from their homes and putting them in prison. Now, I want you to think, sometimes we can overlook this, and we think, we look, man, I already knew all that, so it's not registering. I want you to think about this. When Paul, over and over again, three times in the book of Acts, very detailed accounts of his testimony, where he would share parts of his testimony multiple times in the letters that he wrote in the New Testament. Uh, the Apostle Paul would reference his former life or these things that he used to do. Right here he does it to Timothy. He says, Timothy, remember, one of the things that sticks with me in my mind is the things that I used to do. And you don't think he was picturing Stephen or some of the faces of those family members as he ripped them out of their homes and put them in prison, knowing that some of them would ultimately die? See, no, he absolutely had that torment going through his mind sticking with him and sticking in his heart. So as he moves from there, he's writing to Timothy, if you flip back to 1 Timothy. He says, but despite all of that, Timothy, I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. So he's saying, I didn't even really know what I was doing. I didn't fully comprehend it. He's directly speaking to the false teachers from last week. These false teachers showed up on the scene and they began teaching people more of a religious behaviorism. Like, you have to behave a certain way and obey all of these laws. And if you'll do that, you will get God's favor. And so they made it this religious behavior. And Paul's saying, no, like, I was behaving religiously. I was doing everything I was supposed to be doing, and it wasn't enough. But despite my pursuit of just behaving all the time, God showed his mercy on me. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and the love that are in Christ Jesus. Uh, Notice what he does here. He says, I was a blasphemer, I was an opponent, and I was a persecutor. But God in his mercy showed me grace, faith, and love. You remember when the apostle Peter betrayed Jesus on the night that he died? How many times did he betray him? Three times he denied Jesus. And then after the resurrection, Jesus is on the shore on that beach, and he's preparing breakfast for them. And he sits down and has a conversation with Peter. And how many times does he restore him? Three times. Notice here where Paul says, I was a blasphemer, opponent, persecutor, but I got grace and faith and love. See, Jesus restored him despite his past, despite what he had gone through and how he'd acted. But Paul also understood this. Just because his past was redeemed did not make it something easy to handle. He had to continually come back to that moment where everything changed for him. And I don't know if you know much of his story, but in Acts chapter 9, he, in his rage against the church, finds out, hey, this persecution's going really well. We're kind of silencing these believers. 
but I'm hearing about a group of them meeting up in this town of Damascus, and so he goes and gets the paperwork necessary to go to Damascus and continue persecuting them. That was his goal. And so he gets the papers, he's on his way to Damascus, when all of a sudden he's blinded. Boom. And he's knocked down, and he hears the voice of Jesus saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He's then led into the town of Damascus where he sits for three days blinded. And I want to ask you, what do you think he was thinking of for those three days? Oh, no. I got it all wrong. I've messed up my entire life. I've made all the wrong choices. That kid was innocent. And I watched him die in those homes. And all of these people that I've been hurting and damaging, I got it all wrong. Jesus really is the only way. What am I going to do? And then the whole time God's working behind the scenes and he goes and appears to, in a vision, to a, a disciple named Ananias. And Ananias hears from Jesus and he says, hey, I need you to go and talk to Saul. And he's like, okay, Saul, Saul, wait a second. Like, Saul? He's like, yeah, you need to go, and I want you to explain the fullness of the gospel to him. He's like, well, I got, hey, Lord, no, I, I, can't, I know creator of the universe, but I, I don't want to go. He says, you need to go. He says, how about, I've been working on creating some weapons here. Um, how about we sharpen one of them, and I kill him, and then we rid ourselves of this guy, Lord. Maybe you're not thinking straight, and he says, no, you need to go, and so Ananias goes. And nervously walks in. I mean, think about how nervous this guy was man, this guy was coming to persecute us. Now I'm coming in, and he explains the gospel to him. He baptizes him, and, and then he sends him on his way. And everything in that moment changed for Saul. He experienced the truth of the gospel. In a moment, he understood, man, everything I've done, and God's still, his grace is still sufficient for me. It's still sufficient for me. And, and one of the things I'd have to tell you is this. We have to come to the point, like he did, where we do grieve our past. Like you do grieve over the things that you've done and been a part of, the things you've said, the people that you've hurt. Don't ignore it. I've been told numerous times, all through grad school, I took counseling classes and read psychology books, and a lot of it was like, hey, you need to learn to come to grips with what took place, but don't focus on it, don't think about it. And Paul's saying here to Timothy, he's like, no, I think about it all the time. But I just think about it from the right perspective. We've all had horrible mistakes. I imagine a room with this many people in it, we've, we've been through some really difficult things and made some really bad decisions in our lives. They've been horrible and painful and wrong. And we're, we're thinking, I just got to get past it, not think about it, not focus on it. And Paul's saying, no, think about it and focus on it and understand that God still redeems it. That he's still gracious. For Paul, his testimony, his story was a reminder of his weakness and need for grace, even in the present. It's fascinating. So he says to Timothy here in verse 15, he says, hey, despite all of this, based on all of this truth, Timothy, I want you to know this. This saying, because of everything I'm telling you and reminding you of, that you know to be true about my story, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. I mean, I've, I've experienced this in my life, Timothy, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I'm the worst. I'm the worst of them all. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, in my story, of what God did for me, as the foremost of sinners, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. So he's saying, look, this is what's fascinating about my story, Timothy. I've, I've killed people and hurt people and damaged people, and I've created fear and anxiety in other people, and my story was so horrible, and yet when I think back on my story, God said, no, your story is not done. I am sufficient for you. My grace is sufficient over your story. He takes his story, and he says, not only am I redeeming your story, but I'm going to use your story to help other people come to know Jesus. Like, think about that for a second. 
I'm not just going to make your story better by experience, for you to experience grace. I'm actually going to use your story to help people that are far from God come closer to God. So every single person has a story. When your story encounters grace, your story is not only made better, it's actually used to reach other people. And then it's as if he's sitting back. Picture this. And he's thinking about all that God did in his life. And then he gets to verse 17. And it's like in the middle of this teaching and talking, he has to stop and almost like sing a praise song because he's like, oh, man, I'm just reminded again of how good he is. And so he says to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And he, and he has this praise moment when he thinks about all that God has done in his life and all that God did to redeem his life. See, Paul not only understood his own struggle in the past, he understood that he continued to struggle with sin. If you read much of his letters, you know, in a letter he wrote to the, the Romans in chapter 7, he says this, the things that I know I should not be doing. Remember, S on chest, cape in the wind. I should not be doing these things. I still find myself doing them. And the things I know that I should be doing, I find myself not doing them. What a wretched man that I am. It doesn't matter how horrible I am or, or, or how good I am. It just seems like I keep messing everything up. And, and he's like, but then there's grace. And it's God's grace that continually reminded him in his lowest points. But it wasn't just the low points. I mean, yeah, Paul got really low, and he understood. Like many of us, we struggle with that. We think, like, okay, I've had some really low points, but you don't understand. It's been really bad. I need to get my stuff together before I can really be a part of a church or get plugged into a church or be a part of a discipleship group or really have an impact for the gospel. Rob, I've got to clean up a few things in my life. And Paul would be yelling at you. I know this is ironic, but the only ones who get better in the Christian life are those who realize that their acceptance by God is not dependent upon them getting better. It sounds kind of weird and kind of crazy, but it's like the only people that actually advance in the Christian life, living this incredible life, this journey with Jesus, are the ones who realize that it doesn't depend on that. It's when you come back to grace and you're just blown away by it, then everything has, is, is a motivation from grace. And Paul didn't just understand that. He understood it wasn't just the low points, but the high points. He said, and everything else I've done that's good for God. Everything else I've accomplished for him, Pharisee among Pharisees. I was a teacher among other teachers. As to the law, I was an expert. I knew more than anybody else. When he became a Christian, just think about all that he accomplished. He's planted more churches than most of us will ever visit in our lives. He's baptized more people, so many that he couldn't remember. He's like, I don't even remember who I baptized in that church. Uh, he, he accomplished so much for the kingdom. And then he says, all of these accomplishments, all these great things I did for God, it's all rubbish when I compare it to Jesus and what he did for me. So Paul says, whether my past is full of mistakes or my past is full of accomplishments, nothing compares to the encounter I've had with the grace of God in my life. See, Paul's proper perspective on his past need for grace helped him see his present need for grace. I was asking some of our other staff this weekend, why is it that Paul continually brings up his past? He continually seemed to struggle with it. Because it was a constant reminder of grace. Constant reminder of grace. When I lose touch with all that God's done for me in my life, I also lose touch with all that he's doing currently in my life. You see, our past is not something to ignore or to move past. It's something to start to see from the right perspective. I listen to a lot of preachers. I'm kind of a sermon um, addict, I love, I like all week, I don't listen to music when I drive, I listen to podcasts, I'm just, I just love sermons, 
And so one of the guys I listen to, his name is J.D. Greer, and he preaches at a really large church in, in, in the Carolinas. And he uh, talked about a lot of his friends that were leading these really big churches around the country seem to keep having these moral failures and they're losing their ministries. And he's just like, what is going on? And so he went to a friend of his who's a very well-known Christian counselor named Paul Tripp. And he asked him, like, hey, what's going on with this? And Paul Tripp's response really applies to all of us. He was responding to the specific question, but I thought this is too good because this is for all of us. I, I don't know if you realize this, but the Bible in Ephesians 4 actually tells me that when I became the preacher in this church, I left the ministry and became an equipper and that you're the ministers. And when you come to church, you are getting equipped to go do the ministry. And so if that's the truth, then this statement really applies to you because we are all preachers of God's grace. And so here's what Paul Tripp said to J.D. Greer in response to this. He said this. He says, if you ever cease to be a participant in grace and only a preacher of grace, you're headed for disaster. If you ever lose sight of the participation that you must have in grace and all you're doing is talking about grace, listening to all the right K-Love songs and rejecting all the right rated R movies and only saying the right things and dressing the right way and having perfect church attendance. If you're just doing all that stuff and you're not actually participating in grace and seeing your past through the lens of the gospel and looking at what God's doing in your life, your life is headed for disaster. John Newton, the writer of Amazing Grace, said it this way, growth in grace primarily means growth in the realization of your need for grace and in your current, right now, dependence upon grace just to get through the next day because his grace is new every single morning. And Paul says, I'm really worried about the church listening to false teaching and making this dynamic, grace-oriented relationship with Jesus just a bunch of religious rules that you have to follow. And so he ends 1 Timothy chapter 1 this way. He says, I'm going to charge you, Timothy, because I'm worried about the church listening to these guys that just want you obeying rules. I'm going to charge you with this, my true child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you. So, like, you've been called into the ministry. You've been called to stand up for the truth, and I'm calling you to remember that. This is by this truth that you know, the grace that you've seen God display in your life, you need to wage the good warfare against false teaching. Don't let people fall victim to simply religious rules. Holding the faith with a good conscience. He's saying, keep it simple, man. Just chase Jesus. He's the solution to everything. He's the answer to every question, every problem. It's Jesus. Get people connected to Jesus. Get people reconnected to Jesus. Get people to walk deeper with Jesus. It's all about Jesus. And when you put your head on your pillow at night, have a clean conscience that you did everything you could to connect as many people as you could to Jesus. I love the way Charles Stanley says it. He says it this way. Do the right thing and trust God with the consequences. Just do the right thing. Always do the, the Jesus gospel-centered thing and trust God with the consequences of that. Just do it. He says, because when you don't and people start to fall prey to this relationship with Jesus being a bunch of rules they listen to, he says, by rejecting this truth of the gospel, some have made a shipwreck of their faith. They've destroyed their lives. Among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I've handed over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. This idea that Paul says he's handing them over to Satan, remember the tone never changed in this. His tone was, my dear child. He's talking like a caring father. And that doesn't change when he's talking about Hymenaeus and Alexander. The tone in the original language remains the same, which means this. When he talks about Hymenaeus and Alexander's faith being shipwrecked and them being pushed away, here's what he's saying. Handing them over to Satan is not a final condemnation over them. It's a last-ditch effort to get them to repentance. 
It's like maybe if they experience the life that they seem to be wanting and we just kind of let them go and have that life, then maybe they will hit rock bottom. If they hit rock bottom in, they'll be ready. I'm guessing, and I'm confident of this, if Hymenaeus and Alexander came back to Timothy with repentant hearts and said, we're just, man, we just messed up, we need grace, we're reminded of grace, he would have welcomed them with open arms. And the same needs to be true here. We can look at sin and evil, but we need to understand this truth. Paul understood, based on the grace of his own story, that the only thing that separated him from Hymenaeus and Alexander was grace. Not what he accomplished. What an appropriate lesson, given what's going on in our world. The only thing that separates us from the people that we believe are against what we believe is grace. And our experience with it and their need for it. And so that makes you look at it differently, different perspective. Two takeaways, real quick, and we'll finish up. The first one is this. The wrong perspective on your past will have a profoundly negative impact on your present. And Paul knew that. He knew that if I don't begin to see my past the right way, and remember, Paul would later write to the Philippians, he said, hey, don't ignore your past, don't look past it, don't try to just black it out, don't try to pretend like it didn't happen, walk straight through it and allow God's grace to permeate it. And he said it this way in, in the book of Philippians. He said, whatever is true, whatever is right, whatever is noble, think about these things. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And so he's saying, you want peace? Don't ignore your past. Think about it. Watch it. Look at it. And watch how God, in his faithfulness, has displayed grace upon grace over your life. And then look to your future. I mean, it brings us to number two. It says this, keeping the proper perspective on your past helps you leverage your present and your future for God's glory. So now, if you get it, an understanding of your past, now you can look to your future. And even when you don't understand everything, you can believe him because you've seen he's been faithful. I don't know how to pronounce this man's last name, so I'm not going to try. But here's how he said it. You, if you get a right perspective on your past, you can trust God's heart even when you can't trace his hand. Right? You can trust his heart for your future and your present because you understand what he's done in your past. Even when you can't trace his hand and know exactly where he's going, you can trust that his heart is good for you, that he has plans for you, that he wants to use your story to impact others. This is why Paul could later write in, in Philippians chapter 3, he said this, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining toward what lies ahead. So I understand my past, but it doesn't control me anymore. I'm moving forward. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. If you're mature in Christ, view your past through the lens of grace and then move forward. And if you think anything otherwise, he'll reveal that to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained which is the grace of Jesus. Now, I want this to be true for you. I want you to understand that God wants to take your story, no matter what you think you've been through, that he can't handle, he can handle it. No matter what you've experienced in life, what you're experiencing right now, he can take your story, not only redeem your story, but use your story to help other people find God as he's being patient and waiting for all to be saved. And so we've got this tool for you. It's a little worksheet. They're all out at the Welcome Center. So you'll leave here, you'll go right out in the front lobby over here and grab one or two of these. And it's three simple questions to help you guide your story. Say, what was your life like before you met Jesus? Anxieties, fears, difficulties, what were you going through? How did you come to meet Christ? Who shared the gospel with you? Who baptized you into Christ? Who discipled you? What was that season of your life like? And then last, how has your life changed since coming to know Jesus? Here's the thing, friends. You need to come to understand your story before your story can be used to help other people find theirs. And so you need to work through it and write it out and pray over it. 
and we'd love to hear from you. I love this tool. We use it in our discipleship trainings here. We do these trainings throughout the year, and we try to teach people how to understand their story through the lens of grace. And the first time we were doing this training, we had a bunch of people show up, and uh, we're, we're teaching through this session, and I said, all right, everybody, fill out this form, and then come back, and it's going to be good. And there was somebody in our church who, at that training, filled out the first part. What was my life like before Jesus? And then she came up to me, and she said, hey, I, I can't fill out the rest of this form. And I said, what's going on? We're at a training, mind you. And she said, I, I, I don't know that I know Jesus. I don't know. I, I can't figure this out. And so we sat and walked through it. Then we paused the training, and we walked into this room, and everyone at the training stood here, and we baptized her into Christ. And then, here's the beauty of it, she finished the form that day. And at the very end of the training, she got up in front of everybody, and she shared her story. She said, I know what he's going to do in the future because I've experienced what he did for my past. I can trust his hand or his heart even when I can't trace his hand. I want that to be your story. And so I want to encourage you, grab this sheet and begin to work through it. On the bottom, it says, email us your story because we want to hear it because I think your story could be used to help other people encounter Jesus. But that decision is yours.